painful sex, peeing when you sneeze, heavy menstrual bleeding, hemorrhoids, these are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to crap women deal with after childbirth, surgery, or just living life as a woman. Yet no one talks about it. How can we live our best life as a woman, mom, partner, and athlete without having to settle for average sex or dirty pants? This is the question, and this podcast will dive into real answers. If you get offended easily, this is not the podcast for you. We get real, and sometimes real isn't pretty or proper. If you have young ones nearby, we suggest you put in headphones. We are Joss and Jenny, and welcome to Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs. Before we get started, if you like what you hear, follow us on Instagram, at the Vagina Doc and at Pelvic Boxer. DM us and we will personally answer your questions. For this episode and all future episodes, please keep in mind our disclaimer. The information on this podcast is intended as general information only and should not be substituted or used in lieu of medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another wonderful episode of Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs. Jocelyn and I have a fabulous guest on today, Miss Susie Gronsky. Um, I would not be doing her justice by introducing her. So Susie, thank you so much for coming on. And why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Um, there's really not much to introduce. I'm Susie Gronsky, physical therapist for your private parts. I am a pelvic health enthusiast and I work with people who have pain down there. <laughs> and you've done a few more things than just working as a clinician. So uh, we know that you wrote a book. Um, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, that you are in the phases of the second edition of the book. Is that correct? I currently am in the trenches, yes. I've written a book called Pelvic Pain, the Ultimate Cock Block. It is like the ultimate dude's manual. Uh, it's written for the average guy. Um, it really, it's, it's really just pain science, evidence-based, and then helpful strategies to help with recovery with persistent pain. And as we all know that having pain down in the nether regions can be quite alarming and distressing for anyone. So my hope with that book is to really kind of get this information and knowledge out there sooner than later so that it kind of helps calm the nerves around this area, which we know can be a very sensitive topic. I mean, pooping, peeing, and sex are just basic physiological functions and very important in our everyday life. So it's no wonder that when things go down uh, south, literally there, it is quite alarming. So Susie, I think in the pelvic health realm, you really do um, put a lot more male stuff out there, but I would argue that I think that you are one of the leading experts and just pelvic pain in general. So you mentioned a term when you were describing that, you said persistent pain. So can you just describe persistent pain and how persistent pain is different than an acute pain or like, you know, you stub your toe and how that hurts? Right. So the, the difference between that, so persistent pain is, is the formal definition is three to six months and there's no known pathology or cause, um, no di- diagnostic test to show that there's uh, any structural or any um, 
pathology in that area. And so anything that persists for six months um, without known cause or diagnosis can be considered chronic or persistent. Um, I don't typically like to use the word chronic because chronicity has a negative connotation to it, I think, in general. And persistent just means, well, it's annoying, it's here, it's impacting my life, but there's hope. It, it doesn't have to be forever. Because uh, oftentimes, again, when we think of chronic illness, we think lifelong, right? And so um, I, don't, I don't believe that, that, that having persistent pain has to be lifelong. Um, there's a lot of things that we don't know about, you know, the causes of pain. We know that there's a lot of biology, psychology, and sociology mixed intertwined with the person experience pain. But um, yeah, so that, that's, that's the difference between, you know, what I think is chronic and persistent in terms of that. And um, again, with pelvic pain, it, it is an umbrella or smorgasbord of um, symptoms and issues that one could experience from urinary distress to, to pain with sexual function, to pain with sitting. And really, it's anything that's limiting that person from living their life and, and feeling comfortable in their body. So. Susie, do you, can you walk us through the difference of the persistent pelvic pain in men and women? Like, what do you see in the clinic and how does one know if they have pelvic pain? Uh, so I think there's so two, que two questions. Males and female persistent pelvic pain. And um, the second question would be then, um, how, would you, how would you know, right? Mm -hmm. How would you know? Uh, you know, honestly, I don't think there, you know, it's a human, it's the human being in pain, uh, other than genital orientation and, f you know, different, you know, function of, of how those genitals work. I mean, you know, you have some physiological changes, you know, differences, obviously, and biological differences. But I think when you're just working with a person in pain, um, there should be no difference. It's really about creating safety for that person in their body, um, you know, understanding what's really, uh, what, what functional limitations and how it's impacting their life and the meaning that of that experience that they have in their life. I think if you're taking that approach in terms of a person centered uh, pain care approach, then there shouldn't really be, be a difference. It's every single situation should be individualized, no matter what gender, right? Because um, we know that 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 shouldn't really play a huge role. Although we, you know, some, sometimes the way we address or, um, you know, for in terms of a uh, male pelvic pain, um, you have concepts of masculinity and femininity, and then there's certain health seeking behavior challenges that might, might occur for men, for a male seeking help for pelvic pain. Cause a lot of, uh, pelvic pain, if you type it, in it's female oriented or very feminine oriented it's women's health and a lot of the um i guess clinics out there uh, you know are are mostly women uh, dominant right um and so i think that is one of the barriers for men actually getting appropriate pain care for their genitals is that they, there is a lack of an outlet and a lot, lack of resource in terms of men's health resources out there and so one of my passions is to kind of equalize the, the playing field so to speak <laughs> of men trying you know getting help for their private areas so Susie, uh, and then in terms get, of, I, I think, oh, sorry. Sorry. How did you get interested in men's pelvic health? 
So I, I opened up my practice in 2014 back in Chicago, and I didn't really know what direction I was going to take. I was doing pelvic health at the time, and I just opened the doors up. And believe it or not, there were so many men reaching out, like reading my blog posts and reaching out saying, do you help men? Um, I, could, I could really use your assistance. Like, do you think this is something you could help me with? And I said, sure, of course. And at that point, I really didn't take, I didn't have any male courses under my belt. I mean, this was really not there was, there were really no courses for men uh, to teach healthcare professionals to, at least when I was looking for things. And I said, yeah, why not? Let's work together. And then I started to do more research. And then I asked them like through qualitative, my own qualitative research of saying, what is it that they do the most right off the bat? And hands down, everyone was like, you know, I wish I would know about you sooner. I wish I knew that all this was all connected. Um, you know, because the traditional standard of care would be Guy, have, guy has pain down there, goes to primary care physician or urologist, is given several rounds of antibiotics, which in my opinion are quite unnecessary and actually backed up by research that that should be, you know, one trial of antibiotics. If it doesn't work, let's stop right there. Um, but anyway, so yeah, and then, and then several years would go by with very little information, very little help, very little guidance, and very little support. And these symptoms continue to persist. And we know the longer that something persists, the more emotionally, uh, I guess, the more emotional associations and the learned condition responses to pain get, get, get. Like they get stronger at protecting you. And so this is a big deal. Uh, we want to make sure that we get this information right off the bat. Reassurance, a plan of action, telling I know exactly, you know, what, what, what could be happening here. Let's give you the tools to get yourself better. And it's really providing, you know, a sense of agency and, and empowering and self-efficacy for that individual to be able to handle the situation. And again, this goes for both, both genders or all genders, really. It's not just male oriented or female oriented. It's all about, again, promoting a safe, non-threatening environment, getting someone to feel comfortable in their body, to have confidence and to build up positive experiences with the things that they're normally, that, that are normally causing them, um, suffering or, or, you know, a struggle. So, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> you talk about safe space and you've mentioned it a few times now. What do you do to help foster a safe space? And what do you teach your patients about um, learning how to foster safe spaces outside of the clinic? Safe space is, I think even the website, it starts there. <laughs> being open about having a conversation around sexual health related issues, because we know that a lot of people are embarrassed to talk about these issues. So I think creating a space, even online with everything that we post and the words that we use, is creating a safe context for, hey, this person is approachable so that I can actually ask this question and have the courage to do it. I think that that's Number one is, you know, what you're what, not even the in-person interaction, but the interaction of how one's presenting themselves as a clinician out in the world of, are you approachable? Are you down to earth? And are you safe enough for that person to trust you and feel vulnerable around, right? Um, so that's number one. Number two is the context of your clinical setting, your office space. You know, is it, uh, is it neutral? Is it warm? What about the colors on the wall? Uh, what about the sheets that you use? Um, are you a permission 
um, to engage in that re- in that therapeutic relationship of, you know, how far would you like to go during your first assessment? Um, is this comfortable for you? Um, are you as a clinician aware of body language, your own body language, but also that other person's body language that they're not verbally disclosing, but you can see is like an autonomic nervous system reaction, right? When you put your hands on someone and they're sweating or they're holding themselves so rigidly, but in their head, they're saying, you know, it's okay. Yeah, you can do whatever you need to do. I'm sure you guys heard that, right? Like, just do whatever you need to do. And I'm just like, no, this is, your body is telling us that this is not really good right now. And I'm not going to be the one to add to that cycle or that, that, that um, pattern or that association. What we want to do is we want to come under the radar um, and kind of almost have some clever brain trickery (laughs) (laughs) going on in the session to, again, lessen the threat, create safe and aware of what's happening in their body because they're not aware of that, right? Sometimes our, you know, our people will be like, I didn't even know I was doing that. I'm so sorry. Or they didn't, they're not aware that their heart rate increases a little bit or their breathing changes. And I think, I think part of a role as a clinician is to be aware, to be present, to land the plane with your, with that person and to be completely present um, and receptive in that in- interaction and to pick up on those subtleties. And of course, we're not going to be perfect, but it's your, it's on your radar and you're, and you're also opening up that conversation for that individual to say, Hey, I give you permission to tell me if something doesn't feel good, I can't feel what you feel. I wish I could, but I can't. So really need your help to let me know what's red, what's yellow and what's green. <laughs> and, and sometimes I'll add those elements. Like if pain were a color, if pain were a texture, if um, pain were a smell, I mean, you know, we have to kind of start to, to help them find like experiencing in their body and even that exploration can bring someone a sense of safety like hey she, she's totally getting it she's allowing me to express my, myself and how I feel in something that is otherwise to- completely inexpressible and difficult to relay in words and so I bring out Play-Doh <laughs> like you guys mentioned earlier I have Play-Doh in my office I'll sometimes say hey if you could if you can create what you're experiencing in your body out of Play-Doh what would it look like what colors would you choose? Sometimes I'll even have them feel uh, Play-Doh in their hand when we're doing certain graded exposure, graded activity techniques, because sometimes that tactile, that sensory perception in their hand is a nice gentle distraction to help them to, you know, kind of work with some of the discomfort or um, some of the fear, anxiety around um, exploring pain in a different way. Right. And so, so again, we, we, we use all sorts of sensory integration techniques, Bliss, um, art. I have big poster board here. You know, music. (laughs) I'll place. I'll ask them, what kind of music do you like to listen to? Even on the first session, you know, what's on the agenda today? You know, and then we end off. You know, again. So, so really, I like to um, land the plane with with the individual in front of you. Again, creating that safe therapeutic relationship, that container for safety. As see Mitsyak, who has a wonderful article out there about the. the the um the elements that go into the therapeutic relationship and she talks about like being receptive and genuine and being present um and and so forth and i think those are really key components to 
creating safety. So that was a really long answer to your question, but um, it depends on the individual. Basically, if I can summarize it, it depends on the individual in front of me, what their needs are, how they define what's happening for them and their experience. And then my role is to facilitate or guide them from in a coaching tension um, human and that I, I, I empathize and I have com uh, utmost compassion for the struggles that they're going through. And, and so my, one of my roles is to, you know, be that support system for them in the way that they see fit, you know, again, giving them autonomy to say, this is how I would like, you know, I would like to play a role in this interaction. And this is what I think is best for me. Um, and really kind of playing around that context and really, you know, not treating pain with more pain, using your hands is in, in a more supportive framework and not more of a fixing as physio, physical therapists tend to be like, I need to fix it. I got to find out. I got to fix it. Or if not, not with my hands, the needle, if not with a needle, then with some other thing. <laughs> and that's, you know, again, those tools may play a role for some people, but, um, you know, let's kind of use our hands for more of the supportive, um, grounding. I'm here for you. Safe context versus that cycle of pain and protection and that and then you know heightening their threat detection system so sorry that was really long no don't <laughs> apologize that, that was exactly what I was, was wanting to know and I think what our audience would find very interesting but it, my your my question begets more questions for you so you talk about graded exposure and graded motor imagery can you just mm -hmm. speak to what that is for somebody that might not be familiar with that term and then in a session just kind of generically not with any particular gender but like what might be an activity that would be a graded motor imagery or graded exposure activity and like what would the patient be doing and what would your expectations of the exercise or activity be or like okay. what would be the therapeutic relationship of that activity sure okay so let's define graded exposure activity right so so really it's graded ex exposure is i like to th i like to say it like this you're dipping your toe in the water. It's a little chilly, but you're not diving in, right? Some people need to kind of go in, put like half their body in, maybe a leg and then splash the water around to get like the temperature all right. Like, okay, now I could fully kind of swim, right? <laughs> That's kind of how I like to describe graded exposure, graded activity. Graded activity just means you, we, we pick an activity that you find challenging. Uh, for example, one comes to mind is um, dyspruenia or pain with penetration or insertion. Um, that could be intercourse or that could be with a tool or during gynecological exams um, or in a relationship uh, with a penis, you know, whichever. Uh, but uh, that that is one that I will use um, graded exposure and activity at the same time because we can use tools like a dilator we can also use you know our own hands or that person's own hands but really it's mapping out areas that feel good first again we want to be push past we want to nudge to but not through um, what they're experiencing and so it's really it's testing the waters and exploring well what is that what is that person willing to explore with in terms of pain and discomfort right because you know a little bit we, we want to nudge towards that edge but we don't want to push you know we don't want to just throw that person in the water <laughs> like here you go you would not go be very straight. popular <laughs> no I would not no I would not so I'm really careful and like I tell my I tell my people I get tell them like 
I know I'm going really slow and you're probably like, this is so boring, Susie. But I'm like, you know what? We need to make it really boring because, you know, we need to prove that you can feel safe in your body and there are other places in your body that actually feel good. And so we can go pleasure hunting. That's great. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's, that's how I would describe what graded activity and graded exposure is, is incrementally, you know, feeling safe in one's body, whether that's using a mental image. So let's say, for example, just the thought of thing go up, you know, inserted into the vagina or just the thought or for a, a male body to have an erection or, or have, a, you know, anything that predisposes like a protective reflex, um, then we kind of have to, we have to like in a movie scene, we have to go back <laughs> and find that, that scene that does not predicate having a protective response. Or at least it's, you know, it's, it's, it's manageable and that person feels like they have a sense of agency with that. So they, they're willing to explore it that way and they're willing to feel comfortable. And we practice that over and over again until that scene feels good to watch, right? So that's kind of, kind of where we start. And then we build off of that after that. So we might at, make it a little bit more challenging, but the key is being consistent, persistent, obviously courageous. This is big deal. Um, but, but yeah, consistency, persistence um, in kind of slowly and incrementally increasing the exposure, the activity, um, whether that be touch, sitting, movement, um, insertion of any, any type, um, you know, we need to kind of start creating evidence that you can feel good with said activities. And, and creating evidence for positive experiences might require that we start way back here um, and keep things super simple so that we can be under the radar of these you know say these um threat detection systems so i'm really curious i love this concept of picking that almost motion picture time frame and saying let's rewind and find the frame where you feel safe comfortable something that's not just tolerable Mm -hmm. How does that translate into an exercise for somebody? So we, it depends if, okay. <laughs> okay. So it would, it, it depends on how comfortable, well, what, it depends actually what that person wants to do as an exercise. Let's just, let me put it that way. I ask, you know, what is doable for you to do? What would you like to do? Because I will say that not everyone touches themselves. Not everyone's comfortable with masturbation. Not everyone is comfortable with having their partner do something. You know, it just, it really depends. And I think just to get that answer, you have to ask, like, what do you feel comfortable with doing here? You know, we've done this together. What can you, what can you do at home? You know, these are some suggestions, but where do you want to start? And there has to be some compromise, right? Um, of, well, what we're, again, you know, it's not, this is not about compliance. I hate that word. It's all about compromising and collaborating to find what really works for that person and having them try it out because they might try it and you might offer tools doesn't work for them. That's okay. Again, it's really important to be transparent and say, I have some tools and you can try them out. And if they don't, you know, they're not one size fits all. So if they don't work, please let me know. Because I feel like people, they, you know, it's normal for all of us to want to please other people. And then I feel like not often we are given permission to say, hey, this is not 
this is not working. I mean, I just know for myself, I'll go for a massage and the massage therapist will be like, well, how's my pressure? And she's like digging her elbow in my like glute and getting all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, it's good. Oh yeah. Oh, it's really good. Uh huh. And I really want to say no, no, it doesn't feel good. It hurts. And I'm like tensing on the table, you know, <laughs> like, like that's not okay. But like, for some reason I say, yes, it's okay. So I know from my own experiences in life with my own body that sometimes I just say yes when I really mean no. And you know, again, I think just offering that conversation and offering permission to the individual to say, no, if things we're doing is not helping you. And, 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 and I will not take things personally by all means, because this is all about you. And I'm here to support and guide you in any way that's possible. And if I'm not the right person to do that, or we're not getting somewhere, then I'm not going to continue doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And neither will you. <laughs> You know what I mean? So I think having that candid conversation is really important uh, and just giving them permission to say like, this is where I want to start. I'll be willing to try that. And even if they do it once a week, um, sometimes we get partners involved. I think that's really fun when we get partners involved, especially if it's in, within a safe context, um, because the, the dynamics of relationships with, with, um, Anyone who has pain or persistent pain is is tricky and can be tricky from both perspectives, obviously. Um, and there's a cool article that I read not too long ago that said, really, um, people in pain really want, um, you know, they don't want to be told what to do. <laughs> Or they don't like, they, they really, what they really want or crave is saying like, hey, um, offer strategies to help me continue this activity, even though I know this is difficult or just observe, you know, maybe don't chime in right away with like, let me help you with that, right? <laughs> Here, maybe we could do this or that, you know? Um, and th those are really powerful strategies and they're not often utilized because the initial response is like, let me help you with that or don't do that activity, you know? Uh, and I think we need to work with both, with, with partners too, to say like, you know, you know, educating on like, here's pleasure mapping. And, um, there's a, a wonderful technique with sensate touch, right? Like working with like safe touch, again, exploring each other's bodies without the pressure to perform, just being absorbed in one's experience, feel sensation for what it is a sensation, and hopefully you'll get an appreciation of how transient sensations can be, right? And maybe you'll find areas that actually, you know, feel good because oftentimes we're in pain. We forget what feeling good feels like in our body. We tend to disconnect with the most intimate parts of our body and, and, and there's a sense of feeling broken. And so I, I really, you know, again, part of my role is to instill that you're not broken and we can really make, you know, things can get better. There is a path. There's just not one path. And it's all about, you know, compassionate curiosity for yourself, for your partner, you know, if that's part of the equation and, and, and for the, you know, with the clinician involved, you know, this is, this is a, um, uh, like I said, a collaborative effort. I love that <laughs> compassionate curiosity. We might have to call the episode that, but Susie, um, this has been wonderful information. If people wanted to reach out to you, they wanted to read your book, they wanted to take your course, they wanted to come see you. What are all the ways that people can connect with you? The best way is my website, uh, Dr. Susie zg.com 
mdr.com. And on there, you'll find information about my podcast and where you can listen. I also have a YouTube channel. All my podcasts are, are video recorded as well. Sometimes there's a little show and tell. Um, I, all the information about my book, I'm currently writing as we mentioned earlier in the show, a second edition of the book, um, Pelvic Pain, The Ultimate Cockblock, that should be coming out um, shortly. Uh, still in the trenches, but that's hopefully to come out soon. And um, what else am I doing these days? Oh, yeah, and the course. <laughs> so <laughs> just just that. Yes, I, I, uh, yeah, just that, you know. Uh, I, I actually, yes, I've created and I, and I teach a course called male, Treating Male Pelvic Pain and Biopsychosocial Approach, where I do incorporate a lot of these strategies that I've just talked to you about incorporating play, motivational interviewing, coaching, um, the biopsychosocial framework with working with somebody in pain, um, cognitive behavioral strategies. Um, it's very psychologically informed care and it's really an experiential class. The, you know, you yourself are experiencing these techniques because if you don't experience them for the yourself, it's very hard to kind of play with your, with, with, with your client as well. So it's, yeah, it's an experience to be had for sure. Wonderful. I really look forward to taking that class hopefully this year. Um, Jocelyn, do you have any other questions for Susie? Um, well, I'm sure I'm, I have a ton, but we are out of time. So Susie, if you would be so willing to come on again to talk about pelvic pain in the future, we'd love to have you. That would be great. I'm always, I'm always down to talk about private parts. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we love you. <laughs> well, I love you too, guys. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for great. coming on.